Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale June 16th, 2021. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ryan Penagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm the other co-host, Tucker Marcus. Yeah, Tucker. We have just gotten the details of the Eisner Award nominations. They just came through. Congratulations to all the creators and folks nominated. But most importantly, congratulations to everybody from Marvel who is in there. We're going to be talking about some of the the Eisner-nominated creators in this episode, but um, we don't have a Black Widow issue this week. So, of course, shout out to Black Widow by Kelly Thompson and Elena Casagrande for Best New Series, which, pretty sure, we've been telling everyone, is one of our favorite (laughs) books every damn time an issue comes out. And, of course, there's a lot of Chip Zdarsky love in there and the Eisners. Eisner darling. He's just... (laughs) <laughs> Man, there's a lot. Uh, I'm sure you'll have an article on the website for everybody to check out. Yes, we have an article about the Marvel books, the Marvel series that were nominated and recognized, and then the shared nominations for individuals, for creators who are, you know, being recognized, nominated for their work at large, whether that's Marvel or otherwise, but certainly Marvel being a big part of those as well. So yeah, go check it out on Marvel.com. Tucker, this is going to be a whiz-bang episode because we've got some really great books to talk about. But most importantly, (laughs) our reading club is all about M-O-D-O-K. We're talking about MODOK Head Games with Marvel's MODOK showrunner and co-creator Jordan Bloom. It's going to be great. What else is on the show? We've got to talk about our picks of the week. We've got to talk about new comics. Tucker, have you thought about an award to give out this week? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wholesome. It's for the whole family. It's our can't-be-missed list. Oh, I like it. It's real nice. We'll be giving those out to lots of books this week. We'll run you through Collected Editions and Marvel Unlimited, and then uh, we'll wrap up the show with Jordan. But let's dive into our picks of the week, and um, they're big landmark issues. The first one being Planet Size X-Men Number one, holy moly. You read this a couple weeks early, I remember. Yeah, it's so true. I could not help it. Just specifically to the Hellfire Gala, it's the only one shot in there. It's the only, like, not ongoing series issue in there. So, like, immediately you look at that list of the 12 Hellfire issues and you go, oh, what's going on there? That's really interesting. And that's not even touching the fact that this is a landmark moment that we know going forward for the new team of X-Men. It's a landmark moment because... It is Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larraz teaming up, uh, the new creative team for X-Men. So seeing those elements all come together, knowing what's coming down the pipeline in the future, I could not hold back. Yeah, it's really friggin' great. It is beautiful. And, you know, with the Hellfire Gala of it all, this issue takes place, parts of it takes place during the Hellfire Gala, but parts of it takes place in the lead up to the gala. And it's sort of a really important issue of thinking about what the gala means to the X-Men and to mutant kind. I particularly love the way they've been telling the Hellfire Gala story because all the issues that are coming out this month are set in around the gala. They take place concurrently, some a little bit before and after. And so you can kind of read them in different orders and get a sense of it, but the way they've laid things out from a storytelling perspective, it really hits a perfect flow of getting you to that point 
where you get to this big crescendo with planet size and like the scope and the importance and the big aspects of it and how what it means for all mutant kind. And when I say all of mutant kind, I mean the mutants of Krakoa and the mutants of Arako as well. Tucker, real quick, can you explain what the who the mutants of Arako are, just in case we have folks who are just coming into the Xbox Fresh right around now? Yeah, essentially, I mean, if one is so inclined, I would say go back and read Ten of Swords. We have a reading list on Marvel.com. That's the best way to go get it and get the full entire backstory of the Iraqi. But essentially, there is, you know, for the mutants that we know that exist on Krakoa, there's essentially a metaphorical, so to speak, but also literal flip side to that island. And on the other side, on another dimension, on the flip side of Krakoa, there is a sort of sister world of ancient mutants that exist there that have some very fascinating connections to the mutants, to some very specific mutants. And there are uh, a host of really incredible, still new characters that are from Arako. And essentially, this is a big conflagration uh, in a coming together and and so many different things between uh, those characters that we first got to know in Ten of Swords and the characters that we obviously all know that live on Krakoa. They're coming back together in a really unique way here. But yeah, there's huge implications, like you said, for the Iraqi in this very story. It's really, really cool. Yeah. Shout out to Pepe Larraz, of course. There's some pages in here where he's drawing dozens, if not hundreds, of characters. And it's not just like, oh, there's a humanoid thing. Right. It is full costumes. It is some mutants with, you know, non-humanoid bodies like there's why there was one that looked like an eye with wings that another one was like flying with the sheer breadth of creativity poured into this issue is incredible and of course major shout out to Marte Gracia for Marte's recent Eisner nomination for best coloring specifically it was for Empire and Ten of Swords but We'll be seeing Marte on the new X-Men book that is launching next month, as well as here in Planet Size. It's a fantastic book. We're trying very hard not to spoil yeah. a yeah. damn thing, because <laughs> we we also have two other Hellfire Gala books to talk about in this episode, but Planet Size lived up to the hype. It, it did. That's as simple as that. Not much more we can say to get you to go out and read it, but good golly, you really should. All right. My next pick is Demon Days, Mariko. Number one. Um, and if you've been reading along with the Demon Days saga, you know that that is brought to you by Peach Momoko on story and art. The English adaptation and dialogue is done by Zach Davison. The lettering is by VCs Ariana Mar. The work that Peach does here is mind-blowing. To speak to what you were just mentioning in Planet Size, Ryan, like, the pseudo non-humanoid characters in here are so fascinating. Some of them so adorable. Other ones that are a little more terrifying. You know, there is just such a wealth of imagination going on here. The other thing, aside from that, aside from the story element, aside from the design element or the panel layout, the way that your eye goes across the page, which is, I would say wholly unique 
to Peach Momoko. Aside from all of that, the color palette on this issue, like the previous Demon Days issues, is so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. The muted tones, they just add to the reality that we exist in, in this really, really wonderful way. I think we talk so often about like all these beautiful bright colors. You look at this light source, look at look at that that green, look at the technicolor aspect to it. I know that's something that I always talk about, but it's so striking here because there are several page sequences that are like grayscale and grays and browns and blacks and slight touches of yellow. And it's as astonishing to behold as anything else. Look, Peach Momoko is someone that I can talk about for days and days and days and days and days at a time. Obviously, one of Marvel's Stormbreakers. Just a totally unique voice in comics. And shout out in a similar vein to Marvel Editorial for giving an auteur creator the runway to tell her own story like this. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's great. Uh, All right. We've got one more book on our picks this week. It is Venom number 200. If you don't know, this is the final issue of the Venom run by writer Donnie Cates and artist Ryan Stegman. This is what they plan to do. They did their story that they wanted to tell and they go out the way they want to. And they're not alone. Of course, we have Donnie, but Philip Kennedy Johnson does a 10-page sequence in here. He writes a a sequence featuring... uh, I'm not going to say the character's name, but they were an integral part in the culmination of the King and Black story. I will leave it at that. Pencils in here, of course, Ryan Stegman, but we've got Kev Walker, Danilo S. Beirut, Ron Lim, Guillaume Villanova, Gerardo Sandoval, and Mark Bagley. Uh, we've got inks by J.P. Meyer, Jay Leiston, Kev Walker, Danilo, Scott Hanna, Guillaume, Gerardo, Victor Nava, and John Dell. Colors by some of the best in the biz, Frank Martin, Chris O'Halloran, Jim Campbell, Matt Mila, Alex Sinclair, Chris Sotomayor, and Richard Eisenhoff. And then letters by Eisner-nominated letter, Clayton Cowles from virtual calligraphy. It's a lot. This book is huge. There are like 50 covers because there's like from various stores have their own variant covers. So there's some beautiful, beautiful variants for this throughout and some regular covers. But the story is like crazy. What's going on with Eddie Brock right now? I knew it was going to happen, but to see it like in the pages is pretty dang cool. If you missed the uh, King of Black storyline, Eddie won. Eddie beat Null, and he became the king in black. He can control all the symbiotes if they so choose, which I think is such a great thing here. Basically, Eddie's like, I can control them if they want. If they don't want, I let them go. He can then effectively be anywhere in the universe in which a symbiote exists. And you see him having conversations, being in different places, doing different things, helping out different races, uh, sort of fighting good fights across the galaxy. And it's really remarkable. It's, it's, you can see the love that Donnie has for the character Eddie Brock. And looking at the, the last four years of Venom Comics, elevating Eddie in a way that he was already an incredibly popular character and you know important part of Spider-Man history. But now you can say that Venom very much feels like is its own thing. I ramble a little bit here because there's just so much going on and so much to sort of jump into of what's going on with the various symbiotes that we've grown accustomed to. There's a cat symbiote and a dog symbiote. And I'm like, 
give me new pet symbiotes <laughs> book right now. There's a really beautiful moment between Dylan Brock, which is Eddie Brock's son, and the symbiotes. There's big developments. Again, we're trying not to spoil things. You get a catch-up of what's gone on before, but you really get pushed into the future. You get, like, here's where Venom is going. And Venom is not ending. There will be a new Venom title. We've announced that Al Ewing is coming on. He's going to be joined by Ram V and friggin' Brian Hitch. They're going to be doing some really cool Venom stories, but you get to see some of the foundation laid in here. It's great. It's a really fun book. Yeah. What a moment. What a celebration. Congrats to Donnie, to Ryan, to Devin, to Danny Kazem, to everybody who's been involved on what has been one for the history books. Before we move on, the final page of the issue is also a mini Marvels comic strip by Chris Giarusso. I want to shout that out because I love mini Marvels. Chris used to be on staff at Marvel and he would do these really fun, family friendly, but very like tongue in cheek little kid comics called the Mini Marvels. We put out collections of them. You can find them on Marvel Unlimited. And we get a really fun Mini Marvel story here with all the symbiotes and Spider-Man together. Definitely go check out your Mini Marvels. It was a a wonderful bonus at the end of this great issue. So much to love in that one. So much to love this week overall. Now we're going to continue to dive into all of the new issues heading your way on this 616 And we're kicking off our can't miss list of books with Alien number four. You can't miss this one. You can't miss it because of Sal Roca's art. It is freakish. Oh, my God. There are certain Xenomorph moments in here that made me lose my mind. It's a great testament to the entire creative team that I look at this and I feel the weight, the pressure, the anxiety, the claustrophobia of Alien, of the film. Philip Kennedy Johnson, Salaroka, the entire creative team are able to pack that in here. There are some moments in here that are so tense. They're just wonderful. You know, you you kind of uh, love to hate them because you're just like, get me out of here. Oh, my God. Uh, but that's what it's all about. It's so, so well done. Yeah. All right, we've got another one of our Infinite Destinies annuals with Captain America annual number one. These Infinite Destinies storyline is sort of explaining who has the various Infinity Stones. They are now tied to people in the Marvel Universe. And this one focuses on the character Overtime, who has the Time Stone. Uh, Most recently, we saw him in another book written by Jerry Duggan. I will give my Can't Missed List award for this issue to none other than Jerry Duggan for using the term black hat to refer to a bad guy. He has Captain America call this guy a black hat in this issue, which if you have a conversation with Jerry and he talks about a bad guy, you will almost surely hear him say the phrase black (laughs) hat when you're talking to him. It's great. I heard it twice out of his mouth this week, but it's also (laughs) a really cool story about Captain America and Black Widow trying to chase down someone with the time stone and how much of a pain in the ass that is. Oh, yeah. More comic book goodness coming in Fantastic Four number 33. This is part of the Bride of Doom story arc. This is part two of that. It's called Royal Wedding, this issue. I just love a moment where you can feel Dan Slott giggling as he's writing these pages, having so much fun with the Victor Von Doom dastardly 
master of everything, including his allies, including his enemies. It is so, so much fun. There is a really unique and really cool sort of dynamic that emerges in here between the FF and some characters that are really big part of, of classic FF history that is so much fun in there and Doom sort of sicking all of his weapons on them all at the same time. It's great, but my can't miss list award goes to Victor Von Doom's Tigers. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> They're back, baby. <laughs> so good. I love it. I love Doom so much. I love Dan Slott writing Doom. I also love Heroes Friggin' Reborn, issue number seven this week. Jason Aaron comes in swinging alongside artist Aaron Cooter. Look, you give me Aaron drawing anything, I am here for it. He is one of those artists who I can't help but gobble up every single page Aaron draws. This one is not a singular character-focused issue, unlike the rest of the, the Heroes Reborn issues. This one sort of focuses on the Squadron Supreme of America's history and them as a team and, and sort of the dynamics around that team. And so you get Aaron drawing incredible moments of Nighthawk with a symbiote of a Civil War-type event between the characters, of the death of Hyperion, all kinds of wild moments. Oh, the moment with Blur and Mephisto... Mm-hmm. There's so much going on in this issue. It is absolutely gorgeous. And then we get a second story, of course, following up with the story by Jason Aaron and Ed McGinnis that shows you kind of how this all happened. And this is all going to lead into Hero's Return coming very soon. And as we speed towards the end of what has been a ridiculously fun Heroes Are Born story. The final tie-in one-shot issue that we have is Heroes Are Born Weapon X and Final Flight number one. I am just an enormous fan of this creative team. I think they crushed this. So my can't miss list award goes to Ed Brisson, writer, and Roland Boshi, the artist, who I just think both of them brought it on this issue. Chris O'Halloran's colors, I got to say as well, that those muted tones, they really do something for me. This is a brutal issue. And the way that this story sort of swirls around between the two teams that we're dealing with in this issue is fascinating. There's a lot of politics to it. There's a lot of interpersonal relationships at play. And then as we get into, I'll say the last seven pages, they do not hold back. What an ending to this issue. I loved it so much. It's so good. It's so brutal. I love seeing the place that Hyperion is in this story. It's really cool. This is probably one of my favorite Heroes Are Born uh, one-shots. It's really, really a brutal and beautiful issue. Poor Wolverine. I know. (laughs) All right. uh, Speaking of uh, characters we love and get sad about, let's talk about Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 27, because Saladin Ahmed and crew putting Miles through the ringer. I think that's my can't-miss-list award is to Saladin for just being so brutal and mean to Miles. We're in the midst of the clone saga. We are seeing the the depth of depravity that Selim, the sort of reverse Miles, is going to. It's nasty. It's bad. So there's a lot going on in here, and it's captivating, and this could have been one of my picks in any other week. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, next up, we have New Mutants number 19. It is really, really fascinating what is going on with this team. What's the place of a group like New Mutants? What is their position in terms of the rest of the mutants, in terms of the X-Men, in terms of the superhero side of it all, in terms of Krakoa at large? Seeing that all put into a blender in here and seeing a lot of big questions being asked is really cool. Again, speaking of brutal, boy, oh boy, the stuff that goes down in here is really intense. Though, my can't miss list goes to, I think Wolfbane says this, the word Bairn. Bairn. It's a word that I immediately always associate with one Ryan Agent Empanagos. And when I saw it in here, I loved it. Have I did I say that to you when you were like an intern? Yes, I think one time you were like doing a Scottish accent on the show <laughs> and you said the word bairn and literally since that day I've just associated it with you. <laughs> I like that, which I probably picked up from reading Chris Claremont writing uh-huh. Wolfsbane uh, yeah. as a kid and so it all comes full circle. Uh There's something that happens in this issue. I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of feelings. I will not spoil anything. It's a great book. I don't want to say anything more. Next up, we have Star Wars number 14. This issue is called Save Solo. Uh, I think that says plenty. War of the Bounty Hunters has been such an action-packed crossover event. And I think this is the last week where I'm going to avoid talking about one sort of big part of this story in particular, one that touches on Star Wars past and is sort of coming back around. But I'll avoid that again next week. I think we can start digging into it and all the implications of all those things. But if you've been enjoying the Star Wars books, if you've been enjoying Charles Soule's run, which I definitely have, um, and certainly if you've been enjoying the War of the Bounty Hunters crossover, I'd say pick this one up. All right, we have Mighty Valkyries number three. This one, um, man, we you know, we talk about great, fantastic artists in every episode. And I think we've been talking about that when we talk about this series as well with beautiful art in here by Erica Durso in the Runa story, but the art by Mattia D. Iulis in the Jane story. I am flabbergasted and blown away once again. There's this particularly, I will give my can't miss list award for this issue to a scene of a character crying toward the end of the book that is so heartbreaking particularly as uh, reading it as a parent, it hits so hard. It's so beautifully constructed and so sad. And like the way Mattia draws eyes, it's, oh man, that one knocked me on my ass. I'm right there with you. All right, we're wrapping things up this week at the Hellfire Gala with X-Corp number two. You know, we're only two issues into this series and we have a bunch of, Hellfire Gala business to get through. Aside from the literal business of X Corp, we're still getting to Warren Worthington's place in the business and Monet's place in the business. What this book is really all about exploring, but this issue I think does a really incredible job of mashing that together with the events of the Hellfire Gala. And overall, more than anything, I left this issue just so in love with Monet. I love the way that Teeny writes this character. You look at the way that a character makes decisions in the heat of the moment when they're backed into a corner 
and you realize instantaneously who they are. But also, like in this instance, it makes perfect sense that this character is in this book, that this character has been given this position as co-CXO of X-Corp. So my Can't Miss List award goes to Monet. This is like becoming a threshold moment for me personally in relation to this character. So it's so much fun to see. It's so much fun to learn new things, to dig further into it, and to dig further into what this book means overall for the world of Krakoa. All right. That's what we have for our new comics coming your way on this glorious 616, June 16th. And now looking over to the collections. If you are a Thor fan, good news because we have some of the best of recent history in Thor by Jason Aaron, the complete collection, volume three, right alongside Thor by Donnie Cates, volume two, Prey. That's the current ongoing story coming right out of the back of that story arc right now with uh, new ongoing issues. So a bunch to enjoy over there. Yeah, over on Marvel Unlimited, um, we've got the first issue of Children of the Atom. We've got Thor and Loki Double Trouble, the first issue, which we absolutely love. Another issue of Wolverine Black, White, and Blood. Tons more. Definitely check those out. And I just see on our list that Thor Vikings has been added to the uh, digital store. So if you are if you use Comixology, pick up Thor Vikings. Just know that it is a Marvel Max title. It is written by Garth Ennis <laughs> and Thor gets the snot beaten out of them by undead Vikings, and it's great. The material in there is a little intense. <laughs> uh, speaking of a little intense, let's talk to Jordan Bloom, co-executive producer, showrunner, co-creator of Marvel's MODOK on Hulu, and he's also the co-writer of MODOK Head Games, in which we will be doing the reading club for. Tucker, honestly, how was it? Like, was it Was I too much? <laughs> no, it was great. I loved it so much. I also know, and the listener should know that like, this is a little tiny half a percent of a conversation between, I think, Ryan and Jordan that just went on and is probably continuing to go on to this day. Uh, so yeah, it was so much fun. It's great. Tucker, remember that time we had Phil from LucasArts on? Yes. And we talked about Star Wars? Well, the tables have turned, my friend, because we <laughs> are here to talk about MODOK. And I brought on none other than Jordan Bloom to talk about MODOK Head Games. Jordan, hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Are you guys familiar with the character? Uh, <laughs> he's the guy that has the brain in his chest and he's really tall, like looks like a kind of big baby and he lives in yeah. the Technodrome. Always going after those turtles. <laughs> yep, just <laughs> loves to eat turtle soup. Well, I know it's been a long time coming. Ryan was a early consultant on the project. Look, I will say this loudly and proudly. You know Modoc better than I. You are more well-studied, well-versed, and you have written the character. You embodied the character with Pat and Oswald and your other collaborators. So I defer to you as the new and future forever Lord of all MODOK. <laughs> all right, except For all of our listeners, Jordan and I have been talking about MODOK for a long time. Well, the first time we met, we were walking around Marvel, right? It was like five years ago? Well, I think it was a little less than that, but it was a long time ago. We'd, I think I, my deal just closed with Marvel, but we hadn't even taken it out yet. And it was supposed to be like a one-hour tour. 
And I turned it into a five hour tour because <laughs> I didn't want to leave. Cause I was like, I've been waiting my whole life to come here. And then, you know, you had all that stuff on your desk, your little Modoc, my little pony, I was blown away. So it was a, a friendship born out of mutual love. Yeah. And just, you know, a little while later, dreams do come true. Watching the show for you, it's got to be fun and rewarding to be able to put so much of your like passion and joy into something and actually see it come to fruition and seemingly be as insane as you expected it to be. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm shocked that like critics <laughs> liked it as much as they did because I was like, this thing is nuts. I can't believe we got away with this. But yeah, it, it you know it's it's my two passions. It's comedy and Marvel. And it's an absolute love letter to the comics and to Kirby and kind of everything that came before it. And we tried to work in as many fun things and Easter eggs as we could while still trying to tell our stories. You know, I'd say everything in it is very organic. The one thing that I absolutely crammed in there. And even my writer's room was like, why, who is this character? It was Master Pandemonium. There's no reason Master Pandemonium needed to be in the show, but I forced him in there and I'm very proud of that. I mean, we need an actual Master Pandemonium talk show. <laughs> like a regular ongoing thing. Oh, I would die. It's so interesting talking about all these things. This is something that I think comes out in so many of Ryan and my discussions about this character. But the tacit thing that keeps coming back around when it comes to George Tarleton is, and it's something that I, I wanted to ask you about directly, it's the humanity of this character. And that's sort of the secret sauce in a way that I am constantly fascinated by, specifically when it comes to comedy, of anchoring so much absurdity and ridiculous humor and all this crazy stuff, anchoring that with a real human connection that the audience can make with the with the character. And that's something that really comes through in head games to a huge degree. So I was just curious to hear your philosophy on that as a writer, as a creator of the show, about how important that is to you and how conscious you are when you're creating something of the importance of that, or if it just sort of innately comes through. Well, to me, it's, it's the Marvel recipe, right? Like he is the most comic booky character I think that's ever been created. And, you know, in the entertainment world, maybe that used to be a dirty word. I think now it's it's like, I've always thought that's the best word. If you describe something comic booky, I'm immediately in and excited. And I think you're seeing things like Ragnarok and Guardians of the Galaxy, like we're running towards that. But to me, comic booky also means like really big, crazy idea that is also grounded with humanity. And that to me is what Marvel is. It's telling those kinds of stories. So when we were looking at Modoc from the comics, there's a tragedy to the character. It's a tragic monster story. And on top of that is a character I think over the years has become someone who's very aware that he's not this person that's respected, but he wants to present himself that way. And I think it drives him crazy. And I think that's very human to have this, this ego where you, you're so in your head and you're so self-conscious about how you want to be seen that it ends up kind of being your downfall. And we kind of started there with him as a character, in both the comic and the show and then we started to kind of ask ourselves, like, we've only seen MODOK as this very arch Marvel villain, you know, who tries to take over the world, gets foiled and kind of comes back for another day. And, you know, the idea of where does this guy go when you follow him off that Captain America panel, you know, or what's happening at AIM? We're not seeing these giant battles. You know, what is the, the bureaucracy there to keep that place running? How does that work to have an evil organization? As a villain? I think we, as the more we started to kind of ask these questions, the more we found the humanity in the character and in his world. And obviously we built the family 
around him, but I think the family really are all kind of parts of who he is, you know, and they kind of represent different things and elements that make up Modoc. But the character works so well in different kind of avenues. So he can be very comedic, like in Gwenpool, you know, he can be a serious threat, like in the Avengers game. And there's certain elements that if you get that right, you can bend the character in different directions. And I think I said it in the end of head games, like he's like Batman in that way, that he's so iconic, you know, the design, the mind blast, the way he speaks, if you get that right, then you can really kind of push the character in different directions. But well, we we were going to dive more into the book as well as we'll talk about the show, but um, Modoc Head Games, the series, I believe at least three, maybe all four issues are available now on Marvel Unlimited. So if you have a subscription, you can go check them out. You can go to your local comic shop, pick up the series. And of course, it's written by you, Jordan, as well as Pat Oswalt, pencils and inks by Scott Hepburn, colors by Carlos Lopez, letters by VCs Travis Lanham. And one thing we want to do is we ask for our guests to give a 30-second summary of the book that they bring to Reading Club. So can you, in 30 seconds, tell us the story of Modoc Head Games? I'll give you a countdown starting in three, two, one, go. What a challenge for someone who's so long-winded, as you can already tell. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Modoc uh, is running aim again. He gets uh, hurt during a heist. He suddenly has memories of a family and a life he's never lived. It makes him really mad. So he goes on a journey through his own comic book history to discover the truth behind where these memories have come from and uh, perhaps even bigger secrets around his origin. Ooh, you did it in 25 seconds, even when using the first five seconds to talk about how you would take longer than 30 (laughs) seconds. Well done. You know, the thing I, it's been in my head is you and Patton doing the series for Hulu and you and Patton also doing the book for Marvel. Was there a challenge for you to sort of separate those two in your mind, I, I'm not sure. Were you working on them from the, the writing standpoint concurrently? I think we had just wrapped the writer's room on the season when, when Marvel approached us. And we loved the idea of telling a story with 616 comic book Modoc. We had just spent you know all these weeks writing our version of Modoc. And I love that challenge of like, can we still tell a story with a different version of the character? And the idea of like how different the show in the book are there's there's similarities but also there's some differences and the idea of trying to reconcile those became like metatextually the plot of the story and i think it kind of opened up a really cool mystery for the book i'm so curious to hear your perspective jordan on making that shift not just from a story perspective like you were saying but making that shift from a writing perspective and a creative challenge perspective. Do you see, because these are two visual mediums, do you see something like television and something like comics as being similar or do you see them as quite different? Very different. And that was something we were conscious of from the beginning because look, I'm there every Wednesday. I'm buying books. I've seen those Hollywood guys who are like, I can do this. I can reverse engineer my screenplay into a comic. And they're terrible a lot of the time. And I have read comics my whole life and have studied about how they are different, how you have to tell stories. And also with television, the showrunners and the writers are very much in this steering wheel, you know, kind of overseeing and making every direction. To me, comics are an artist medium. And like we were there to make Scott look as good as possible and write the things that he was excited to draw and kind of take our egos out of it and just 
create a platform for Scott, I think, to shine and, and be the star. So like, I love switching those gears and coming at it from more of a visual standpoint than even how we approach the show. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up Scott. Scott Hepburn, the artist on the book. That man can do anything and make it look bonkers. And you get, you guys give him a lot of weird stuff to do, a lot of amazing moments, very violent stuff, very over-the-top stuff, great reactions. What were some of his reactions to the script? Or is he just like, all right, this is what I'm in for. This is where we're going. This is what I signed up to do. I think, you know, it was more of after we'd seen some of the pages coming in, you know, from the first issue, and we were so blown away, like the splash pages alone. I, I have that one of Modoc chopping up everyone and black lasering and stuff. And he worked so well in these big, these big pages that we wanted to keep adding it. So as you read the book, you'll see every issue has more and more splash pages to the point where like we have these double page ones in the fourth issue where he's telling Modoc's origin through his mind. And, and it was just, seeing that like he could take anything we threw at him and he was so good at it and so game and always brought ideas on how to make it better and improve on it you know like so much of of that is just him making it his own so we were just trying to write in a way that would allow him to just kind of explode on the page when you talk about writing what's your process when you're writing this story with Patton is it like you're chopping things up over zoom you're talking about things are you breaking story and then sending each other pages how does that work well, before COVID, we were breaking it together and writing a lot of it together, which was a blast. And then we started just kind of doing like Zooms where we would outline together and then break up the scenes and we just pass them back and forth and back and forth. So it's a really fun, organic process, but we always wanted to kind of keep it loose. And obviously everything we sent to Scott was like, here's our suggestion, but if you there you see this another way, go for it and do it. And we loved getting on the phone with Scott and kind of brainstorming and collaborating with him as well. We really tried to to work as closely as possible with him. Had you written any comics before this? Any indie books, any anthology stuff? This was my first comic and I would love to do more. Like this was honestly the most fun I've ever had making anything. And I love the Modoc TV show and I love all the work I've done in television leading up to it. But honestly, this was like, it was so pure and beautiful and it never felt like work. It was, I honestly, I was just looking forward to, to it. And I was so sad when it ended and I'm like, I'm, I'm craving to get to do more. So it was, it was a blast, but I was lucky because Patton had written a bunch of comics before. So it was nice to have someone who kind of gone through it, but you know, I read as many scripts as I could. Jerry Duggan is a good friend. So he was sending me a bunch of his and he's a master. So it was really just kind of, looking at what he does and being like, let me try that. I'll try my best to even get close to that. Can you track on the discussion of the writing process? Can you track your, for lack of a better word, I guess, education as a writer from your very beginning in the TV industry through to something which feels like a big auteur creation celebration where you're calling all the shots. Can you quantify and track how that went? Can you go through your career that way? Yeah. So, you know, I came out to LA wanting to write and direct and I worked a lot of weird jobs and then I was unemployed and I I was lucky. I got a friend put me in touch with someone I got on American Dad as a production assistant and just, you know, originally TV wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a feature writer and director and I was there, but you learned so much being around other writers. So I was a PA for the writers on American Dad and I was just kind of absorbing it and picking their brains. And then eventually I became the assistant to the showrunners on that show. And then 
you know, we would talk all the time and they really started to trust my story instinct to the point where they were bringing me into their office to be like, what do you think we should do kind of here? What would, you know, and then they're like, what are we doing? We'll just hire you as a writer. So I was kind of thrown into the deep end in the comedy world too and loved it. And it was like a muscle I had to work. But it, again, storytelling is storytelling. And I grew up being a huge comedy fan. So did that and sold some pilots and, and then went to community first season, which was a blast to do live action and, and work with all those people. And, and then went back to America Dad. And one of the people I had sold a show with ended up at Marvel. And I met with them and, and with Patton because Patton and I had done that pilot with him. And they were like, we have some characters if you guys are interested. And I was like, what about Modoc? And because it's Marvel, they got it immediately. And they're like, oh my God, yeah. So uh, <laughs> we were really lucky and it's been, you know, it's like an absolute dream project. I've been reading comics since I was in a high chair. There's pictures of me with like a Mark Greenwald cap in a high chair, which is where Modoc is amazing in that run. So it's kind of, yeah, it's just, just a straight line from the high chair to, uh, <laughs> to getting to run the show. Oh, man. Um, I want to sort of jump back over to the comic a little bit because I'm looking through the first issue here and you got these great battles with Monica and AIM and MODOK and all that stuff. But at the end of the first issue, we get Tony Stark and including Tony Stark in a MODOK comic makes sense. There's a connection there. But seeing him in the show, the fact that you get him in the Hulu show, I was still surprised by. And the lines around him are incredible. And that you get John Hamm to voice Iron Man is like, <laughs> what did you do? What did you do? Did you make a Mephisto deal? Where did all this come yeah, from? I'm about to turn into a, a little demon baby hand after this podcast is over because uh, I sold him <laughs> my soul. But no, it was, you know, Patton is friends with John Hamm. And the weirdest part about getting him to do the show, he was our first pick, obviously, because Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man was dead, so we had to find a new one, was that when we referenced shows in the writer's room, we rarely talked about comedies. We would always talk about Mad Men. <laughs> like there's, there's a whole bit in episode five yeah. where Modoc essentially does the carousel speech about a black hole gun. And so good. in that same episode is John Hamm playing Iron Man. So there was something so weird and, and amazing about him being cast. We talked so much about the show, but it's one of things he's like one of the greatest dramatic actors working right now. But so funny, and he just wants to play and have fun. And it was like one of the best records in the booth where like he just wants to get silly and have a good time. And he absolutely got it. And his version of Iron Man is really fun, which is like he's really over it with Modoc. And I think that was like <laughs> the less he gives Modoc, the more angry Modoc gets because Modoc very one-sided arch nemesis relationship. So we thought that would be really fun to play with in, in tracking also how far Modoc has fallen in our show. Also, Iron Man gets called and then uses the phrase wet and, you know, truly in the year of our Lord Modoc 2021, that is one of my favorite things. Uh, on the flip side, in the comics, when you were saying, when you got, you and Patton were saying to Jordan, this is a story we want to do, we want to include one of the most popular Marvel superheroes. We want Iron Man in there is any problem. Do you run into any issues where you're like, these are the characters that we think makes this story work for the character of Modoc? Um, no, I think Jordan checked with Tom just to make sure we we could use him and we got the design right because I'm loving the new series right now and they gave him that really cool new armor. So we're like, yeah, we get to use that. That's great. But it's Iron Man and Cap, right? Are the two definitive Modoc enemies. And Iron Man makes the most sense because Iron Man is like 
the successful version of Modoc. He's also an egomaniac who happens to be a great hero where Modoc is an egomaniac who's kind of fallen on hard times. And I've never seen them work together. So the idea of doing a buddy comedy kind of heist issue was something that we're really excited about. We had this supervillain expo idea, this tech expo that we, we almost did it as an episode. And so it was like, we were able to kind of rescue an idea we didn't have time to do. But I think I really love how it works in the comic. I think we played it a little, a little more serious than we would have in the show. And getting to see those two play off each other, it, it was a blast. Jordan, where are you from? I'm from New York, right by the X-Men. <laughs> Seriously, five, I was five minutes in theory of where they should be because I was right near North Salem and South Salem, so Salem Center, which I don't think is actually a real place, would have been in between them. So uh, I never <laughs> found it, though. Never found the school. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I asked because to go back to then, to go back to the beginning, I would love to hear you talk about growing up reading comics. Yeah. Well, my father was an immigrant who learned English through comics. So I was like born with a comic in my hand and it was something that we always kind of shared, but I just took to it immediately. Like even the first time my mother took me to a library, I just beelined it past the books because they had a comic shelf and was grabbing those like, you know, superpowers, Jack Kirby books. And like I said, the Mark Grunewald cap run was huge for me. I read everything. And I think, you know, somewhere in the late 80s, it was the the Evolutionary War annual for Uncanny X-Men. It was like love at first sight with the X-Men. And I was one of like three Jewish kids growing up in a town that was like predominantly Irish, Italian Catholic. So I always felt a little bit of that otherness and the idea of the school where you could go, where everyone was accepted and had this found family element. It just like clicked. I just couldn't get enough X-Men. I love how tangled their continuity was that you had like 17 years of Claremont building on him, his own stories. And you would pick up an issue and be like, what is the siege perilous? And why is Psylocke a ninja? What is happening? And you'd have to go and make sense of it. I love that challenge. I love that kind of continuity because that's something that really only exists in what like comic books and soap operas, you know? And, you know, I remember buying all those X-Men classics and getting that one right after the Dark Phoenix saga where Cyclops goes through the entire Silver Age. Then there was that perfect storm of Jim Lee, the 90s, you know, the cartoon X-Men where we got all the toys and and all. I just couldn't get enough. I lived and breathed it. And still this day, I've been buying every X-Comic since like Executioner song and my habits are out of control. And now I'm reading <laughs> everything that I can get my hands on and just saying it's research. I want to shift gears again, talk a little bit about in the show, the uh, the Seagramites show up, the little snaily guys from Hercules, Prince of Power. Now, Tucker in Marvel's MODOK on Hulu, those little dudes show up and seeing them show up in the show, I was just like, it's so perfect. It's so great. <laughs> what are some of your other favorite really deep cuts that show up like Tatter Demelian just getting mentioned. I was like, that was Patton's. Yeah. Well, he's in it. I mean, that's the guy <laughs> Wonder Man's beaten up in the alley. Yeah. Yeah. Wonder Man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Seagramites, I would love to take credit that I knew who those characters were. And I have a pretty deep encyclopedic knowledge of the Marvel universe, but we had the Marvel handbooks in the writer's room and someone was flipping and they're like, these things are like master brewers and hedonists. And we were looking for an alien menace because we wanted to like fake you out with the brood, but we didn't know what we were going to use. And we were looking through them. And when we found that, it like all clicked and we were so excited. I actually voiced them. I'm, I am all of the secret bites. <laughs> I love to party. There's yeah. some like, ridiculous <laughs> lines in there. It's so great. They're so stupid. I love them. Um, so I think a lot of them are in in the show. Like I'm a huge Fing Fang Foom 
fan, obviously. And we talked about Master Pandemonium. Arcade is another one. And Murder World. Like, the idea of getting to use Murder World was thrilling. The big thing is the bar with no name. Like, I love those, like, blue-collar, going-to-go-drown-their-sorrows-in-beer kind of supervillains. It's career criminals, you know, who aren't trying to take over the world or anything. It's just what they do. So I love that whole world. We had to do an episode on that. You know, you're talking about the writer's room. That's something I'm so fascinated by. I'm curious when you're putting together a writer's room for a project like this, if you put together this writer's room like you would any other writer's room, or if it's because you know you're looking to add so much esoteric comics material that maybe not necessarily everybody who's in there has to be a comics pro or nerd like you and Patton, but if they have a little bit of extra knowledge, it might be useful, things like that. Or if it's just sort of standard procedure in the other way, and then you have people, you know, open up the Marvel encyclopedias while they're, while they're writing. Well, Patton and I knew that we, we had the Marvel stuff kind of locked down and we actually wanted to make sure that we had people in there who weren't as familiar so they could tell us if we were going too far, you know, <laughs> and just, just cramming Easter eggs and stuff into this as opposed to telling stories. But, you know, cause I think that's the thing is you make a TV show like this, it's got to appeal to everyone. So we just picked the funniest people and the people we really want to work with are people whose stories and voice really are reflected in the show and in the characters. So that was kind of a big thing for us obviously you know we have a, a diverse family so we wanted a diverse staff and just making sure that things felt real to the characters and and you know people got into it and people would flag things in these handbooks and i had a spinner rack that was in the writer's room i, I just filled it with comics and would change them out and stuff and people would read at lunch and find things and it kind of brought them into the world but you know ultimately we wanted to make something that yes you could go in not know anything about marvel enjoy the show but if you do know about Marvel, you're going to see that Hellfire Club mask we put in the background. So like that kind of stuff was always going to be in there, but we just didn't want it to kind of take over the show. And I think having a staff that weren't necessarily only comic geeks like us was very helpful in finding the balance. I think there are those things for people who aren't just the hardcore Marvel fans that I think that's one of the reasons why it works so well is that you can have people who are nerdy about billions of different things and they're going to find something in the show. Yeah. Well, I think the second episode is where it kind of clicked for us where it was like, okay, this is going to be a crazy time travel story in the Marvel universe with breaking into shield helicarriers and stuff, but it's going to be to go to a third eye blind concert. And it's like, that feels like the balance, you know, I think <laughs> for what the show is to me, it was really fun to explore parts of the Marvel universe. We don't see a ton of, so like getting to, figure out how aim mountain works and then have, you know, Scott draw this diagram of, of Modoc falling through it, like dark Phoenix saga, you know, like I love trying to figure out that, is there a board, all this stuff like that we were figuring out in, in making uh, head games and how they operate. Cause you really only get little pieces of aim throughout the history and the comics. So the idea of like finding that section of Marvel and then kind of making it your own or, or adding to what's come before it, it to me is like the greatest thrill of getting to work with these characters and, and location. Yeah. You can kind of tell you guys are having a good time as well in uh, issue three, because we go from, you know, issue one is, is, is all the, the craziness with the start of, of the battle with aim and Monica. And then issue two is the team up with Tony and the supervillain expo. And then three is Gwenpool. And it just seemed like, Y'all had so much fun playing with Gwenpool and, and, and using her just surreal abilities uh, to the fullest. 
I loved writing her, but I was never more nervous because A, we're working with Jordan. Gwenpool is one of his babies. And her fan base is terrifying. Like when the solicit came out, they're like, <laughs> what are your intentions with our, our hero? So we really spent a lot of time rereading her series and trying to, to get that right and use her meta powers in a way that expand on what she's done and also like make sense for the story and, and dig into the themes, you know, that she, her realizing that we're trying to humanize Modoc and this is his series. And she's kind of gone through a process of changing over time as a character and evolving and her having sympathy for this character that she was sent to kill and trying to make good, you know, and I think it was a really fun way to use her and what makes her unique. It's such a fascinating thing to hear you talk about with Gwenpool because a character like that demands that you go super far, but also simultaneously, it feels like restraint is similarly an equally important part of that equation. It feels like truly such an intimidating challenge, but it kind of is the ultimate question of of control, of story control. Is that something, is that a challenge that that you felt like was there for you? We were so lucky to be doing the book with Jordan White because he has thought out how these powers work. These powers that seemingly have no rules, Jordan has rules for. And I love that because I think originally we just had her going back through the pages and she was going to cut out the page herself. And Jordan's like, no, she should have the reader do it. And that was his idea. And it was really so much cooler to have her mark the page. And then he also had the idea of like, on the original page, we should see the markings, but have no context for them. So that by the time you get there, you realize what, the, like, again, Jordan has thought this stuff out. He spent so much time on this and it was like, oh my God, you made this gag a thousand times better and cooler. So I'm, it was really him and his guidance. And it was just a dream to work with. To jump on the back of that, can you quantify? I mean, I asked you earlier about the ability to quantify your experience leading up to Modoc. Could you quantify your experience of like you said, this is your first comic book writing experience. Are you separated from it enough yet that you can really digest and regurgitate what you learned over the entire experience? A little bit. To me, it's just still surreal like that it exists. Like I'm not joking. Like, I almost cried when I went to the comic store and got the hold of it. Like <laughs> it has been a lifelong dream from like day one. I wanted to be a comic artist when I was a kid except I had no discipline to draw backgrounds or perspective. <laughs> I just want to draw Spider-Man. So my mind has been in comics forever. And it's my first love and it's my passion. And I was so nervous doing it. And, you know, also I had a million ideas of things I wanted to do and how to utilize the medium. And that was a big thing for me was think about the tools you have from bubble placement to sound effects appearing there and, and using them to tell the story and, and how you figure out the layout with the artist. Like, all that stuff to me was was the best part about it because it was looking at what you have that makes this so unique as a medium versus just trying to do what you do in TV or movies or whatever. You know, I feel like I just scratched the surface, but I think I, I tried to have as much fun as possible. And I'm hoping that kind of comes through in, in the series and that we gave you stories. You know, you get a full story in every issue and every issue sort of has a different tone because it's matching Modoc's history, which is has different tones every time he appears, because that's really what it is. It's a tour through his history where he's revisiting the Serpent Society and revisiting Gwenpool and revisiting Iron Man and AIM and, and Monica and kind of exploring who he is. So we really tried to give you a full adventure, a full full story in each one, but still tell a bigger narrative and then explore who he was as a character. You mentioned, you know, with Gwenpool fans, they're 
hyper intense about their character. Who are those characters for you? Who are you just like, do not touch my baby boy? Like I would say about <laughs> Cyclops, Madrox, Danny Moonstar, Mirage. Those are real three big ones for me. I think the bigger, bigger characters in the Marvel Universe, I'm a huge Spidey guy. And the Fantastic Four are, you know, specifically Ben Grimm. Yeah. He's very precious to me. I don't know if you guys, did you see his cameo? Yes, him and uh, and, and the old knucklehead. Yeah, it's a bummer. It's not it. We had to cut it for time, but the name of that beer was, I think, like Lucky Jim Hallett's Canadian Ale or something like that. <laughs> Wolverine's got his own beer in our universe. Yeah. So we, we have a story up on Marvel.com about the Easter eggs. And I like I was reading through it. I was like, this is a really great list. And I don't think it touches nearly everything. I've been looking online and, and there's still so many people haven't gotten it. Because I, ha- I, being like I am, like a continuity comic nerd, I made a list of every Marvel reference and Easter egg in there. And it was six pages long. So <laughs> people aren't there yet. I'll say that. They're getting close, but not there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in sort of the same vein, you said that you've been reading weekly for years and years and years. I, I just want to hear what you're reading and enjoying right now. Uh, Al Ewing's Hulk, obviously, is, is probably one of the best books, I think, out there. There is not a bad X-Men book, which I'm in X-Men heaven right now uh, since Hot Fox. I love all of them that are out right now. Um, especially its new way of X is a dream. I think it's like, I've been wanting a great Nightcrawler book for years. I love Excalibur. I love Claremont's Excalibur and Allison, Alan Davis's run on Excalibur. And this feels like the next step in that story. Oh yeah. I love Chris Cantwell's Iron Man. I think it's such a cool kind of left turn, you know, from where the character's been and, and is really kind of, an interesting place to take Tony after all, everything we've seen with him. Runaways, every Jason Aaron thing that he can write, I gobble. I mean, that's, I, I follow a lot of writers too. You know, mm-hmm. as far as character goes, I'll read any X thing ever. But when it comes to usually what I pick, it's it's writers, you know, and artists who I really follow. And, you know, there's so many amazing people at Marvel right now. You guys are bankrupting. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys, <laughs> for making good books. Yeah. <laughs> Jordan, thank you for coming on and talking about the book. I believe I'm going to also talk to you soon on This Week in Marvel with some of the other folks who helped make Marvel's Modoc on Hulu so amazing. But um, that's a little tease for another conversation we're going to have, uh, which means I get to hang out with you some more, which makes me happy. <laughs> I love it. This was so fun just kind of geeking out. I, I don't have a huge comics community. So whenever I get to talk comics, it's a thrill. Yeah, we're here. Anytime you want to come talk <laughs> comics. Love it. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you again to Jordan Bloom for joining us for that conversation. Thank you to Jordan and Ryan for letting me impinge on their Modoc love fest for that character that means so much to so many. What a really, really fun chat about a really, really fun character and time. A great time to be a Modoc fan. It sure is. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bacala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And Tucker, did you know that Brad, much like MODOK, is an acronym? Yes. Tell me about the acronym, Ryan. Yeah, I, I've heard to some the acronym means big rude boy, also a dad. Uh, but maybe you've heard a different one. 
And just so you know, pedantic listener, Rude Boy has a hyphen. It's hyphenated, okay? I heard that it actually stands for boy. Really? Always? Dude. Boy, Boy, really, really always, always, dude. All right, that's it for us. I'm Ryan. (laughs) And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe.